So we come now to a new section of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're just joining us this morning, we began in the season of Advent uh, working through the Gospel of Matthew. We saw the birth narratives of Christ. And uh, Matthew is really emphasizing the reality that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And we come now to a new section of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew skips ahead with these words, in those days. Matthew skips ahead his narrative 28 to 30-ish years. Really, we don't have anything about the childhood of Jesus other than what we've seen the last two weeks with his parents and the going to Egypt and coming back. Luke is the only gospel writer who records the story of Jesus in the temple at 12. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to not spend a lot of time in giving us any narratives about the childhood of Christ. And so Luke, I mean Matthew, skips ahead about 30 years. And we come to this section in Matthew where he's going to show us the preparation of Jesus Christ for his public earthly ministry. And this preparation for the ministry of Jesus Christ begins with the forerunner, John the Baptist. Next week, we'll look at the baptism of Jesus, and then we'll see his temptation in the wilderness as we move on in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come to this time, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The people of Israel had become used to silence. It had been 400 some years since an authorized prophet from God had given Israel a word from the Lord. This was the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament where our Old Testament ends. There was what some theologians call the 400 years of silence. Now God is always speaking we know in creation and through his word. But there had not been an authorized prophet from God that we know of. In these years. And so Israel had gotten used to silence. But there was a buzz in the air. Israel had been waiting on a new word from God, especially as it related to the promised one, the Messiah, whom God would send. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, this new zealous prophet named John comes on the scene, preaching in the wilderness the need for repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, we are told more information about John and the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke. We learn that his father was a priest named Zechariah and his wife was Elizabeth and they conceived him after many years of being barren. We also learn that John is the cousin of Jesus. Actually, John's ministry is recorded in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I would encourage you, take some time later today or this week and read Mark and Luke and John's account of John the Baptist. John is like this prophetic link for the Old and New Testament. He comes as this figure who bridges the old covenant and the new covenant. And today I want to look at a couple elements of John's ministry as we prepare 
to see the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. Everything about John's ministry was prophetic. He came to speak the truth of God. But it was also preparatory. John's ministry was to point to one greater than him. And so let's stop and look at a couple elements of John's ministry. First, let's look at his attire. Have you ever read this section? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this was he of whom it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Have you ever read that section and scratched your head like, why are we talking about what John wore? Like, you don't get that with any other figures in the New Testament. It's, hey, the Apostle Paul was here and he wore this great flowing robe with this leather belt. You don't get that. What's going on here? Why, why did Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, spend time to tell us what John wore? Well, it's important because it points to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You see, listen to what this says in 2 Kings about Elijah, the prophet of Israel. What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, this is speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, is it Elijah the Tishbite? You notice Elijah wearing the same clothes as John? As we've seen this idea of typology in the scriptures, we have things that repeat, history that repeats itself, God-ordained history that repeats itself. And we see Elijah... Possibly Israel's most important prophet, he was at least Israel's most well-known prophet, was a model. He was a model for the subsequent prophets in Israel. We are told what he looks like and what he wore. And it's the same as John. So John, what he's doing is, whether consciously or subconsciously, is coming dressed in the likeness of Israel's greatest Old Testament prophet. But even more important than just looking like Elijah, because this would have come to people's mind when they saw and they heard of this wild prophet out in the wilderness, for that is where Elijah was, they would have been reminded, oh, this guy's like Elijah. Let's go out and see what he has to say. But even more important than looking like Elijah, he came in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill what God had promised beforehand, to fulfill prophecy. Listen to this, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Here's what he says in Malachi 3 and 4. First in 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4. The, this is the last chapter in the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, 
when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. For all Israel, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Do you see what's going on here? 400 years before the John the Baptist, God had promised that he would send a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. And he says it was Elijah. You see what's going on here? John the Baptist is fulfilling prophecy. And what we see, we're not going to take time to read this, but I encourage you to go home. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 15, Jesus Christ tells us that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. God had promised his people that Elijah would come. That Elijah would come before his Messiah came. So the people of God were waiting for 400 years for this. Elijah. Now, some thought it was literally Elijah who would come, that he would return. But what Jesus tells us is that John the Baptist comes in fulfillment of that prophecy. So John the Baptist comes in the spirit of the Elijah. That's what we see the Lord meant in the Old Testament. And so John is fulfilling an important piece of God's prophetic timetable. Before the Messiah comes, the forerunner would come like Elijah. So, so this is why these little details, every detail in our scripture matters. These details of what he wore, they're pointing to something bigger. They're pointing to something greater. They're pointing to something prophetic that God had promised Elijah would come. And we have that Elijah right here, John the Baptist. But even more importantly than what John wore, was John's message. John's message to the people out in the wilderness was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what we'll see is that Matthew will use the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God interchangeably. It means the same thing, the kingdom of God. Repent, he tells us. And, and, and so we need to stop and see what it was that this messenger came to what message he had. And his first words were repent. And that's the Greek word metanoia. And what it means is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. The, the, the word literally means to change your mind. But we know when we actually change our mind about something, our actions follow, don't they? This is why John the Baptist later says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you actually changed your mind about these things, your lifestyle would change. Your decisions would change. But we need to understand that repent means to change your mind. And what we'll see is, when we close, is that we need to change our mind about a lot of things. 
lives. But John comes and he says, repent. John is calling to change, calling the people to change their mind about all of life. The way they think, the way they act, and the way they live. We even see in the Gospel of Luke that John gave specific examples of what a repentant mind looked like for soldiers, for politicians, for others. This was an urgent call. This Elijah-type figure is out in the wilderness calling people to urgently repent. You need to change your mind, he says. But he tells us the reason he's calling people to repent. We see in his message, the reason he's calling people to repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's not just saying repent and leaving it at that. He's saying you need to change your mind because the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. And and so what we're going to see as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew is that the kingdom of God will come up over and over and over again. It's one of the main themes in Jesus's ministry. In fact, it's one of the main themes of all the Bible. And I'm going to stop and give a little advertisement here for our book discussion group. God's big picture. What we are going to be discussing is the kingdom of God traced from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you've ever wondered, if you want to study a little more in depth about what the kingdom of God is and what it's all about, that's what we're going to be doing. And and, and so we need to step back and say, what do we mean? Because the kingdom of God has suffered under much ink spilled by theologians and others, that it can be pretty confusing when we talk about the kingdom of God. So actually, from the book we're going to use, I think Graham Goldsworthy, an Australian theologian, has the best succinct definition of what the kingdom of God is. So so John the Baptist is telling the people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? Graham Goldsworthy defines it in the most simple way that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now, Vaughn Roberts goes on to say this about this definition. That may sound like a simplistic definition for such a significant theme in Scripture, but the simple words contain great depth. God longs for human beings to enjoy intimate relationship with Him in His presence. As He is a perfect holy God, that is possible only as we submit to His loving rule and do not sin. That is life at its best. Life as it was designed to be lived in the presence of God without sin. To live under God's rule means to enjoy God's blessing. The two go together. That is what we see at the creation in the Garden of Eden until the fall. But then human beings disobey God and forego his blessing. The consequences are devastating. Not just for humanity, but the whole of creation. Everything is spoiled. But in his great love, God promises to put things right again and reestablish his kingdom on earth. The rest of the Bible tells the story of the fulfillment of that promise. 
partially in Israel's history in the Old Testament period, and then perfectly through Jesus Christ. So the Bible is about God's plan of salvation, his promise to restore his kingdom, and then the fulfillment of that promise through his son, Jesus Christ, end quote. That was a mouthful. But I think you get the point. The kingdom of God is about living under God's rule and experiencing God's blessing wherever he has us. Now, in the Old Testament, that was in Israel. For Christians now, it's anywhere. The reason the call to repent is so urgent is because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the reason the kingdom of God is at hand is because the king is on the scene. The king is here. Because one of Matthew's themes is that Jesus is the rightful king, not just of Israel, but of the cosmos. We see that in Matthew 28, don't we, where Jesus says all authority. Where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I say it here all the time. There's not a place in the cosmos, in the universe, where Jesus Christ is not the rightful ruler. And king. And so John is saying, repent because the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is here because the king is here. The reality that the king is here is so serious, and there's a call to get right with this king because this king is coming to bring his blessing, and you don't want to miss out on the king's blessing. But another important piece is that the king comes with judgment too. And you don't want to experience the king's judgment. And this is what we see in verses 11 and 12, don't we? The Pharisees and the Sadducees come and John points the finger at them and says, you brood of vipers. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And then he begins to talk about his baptism. And, and, and he says that he baptizes with water for repentance. But one who comes after him is mightier than him, whose sandal he's not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is saying you need to get right with this king because this king is coming to bring his blessing, but he's also coming to judge. This is why the call is so urgent. And we, we confess this, right, when we say the Apostles' Creed, don't we? And we looked at that last year. We did a sermon series using that as a jump-off point. What do we say? That Christ will come and judge the living and the dead. John is saying you need to repent because the king is here. And that king, one day, every single human being who has ever existed will stand before him and give an account. That is scary and sobering, is it not? And we will stand before Christ either in our own righteousness, which if you know your own heart and you're honest, is a really scary thought. Or we will stand before him clothed in the righteousness he gives us. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the kingdom. That we can stand before Christ with a righteousness that is not our own, but his. That he gives to us by faith alone.
But we will see John the Baptist isn't an outlier. His message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to see when we get to John chapter, Matthew chapter 4. This was Jesus' message too. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Imagine hearing those words from the king himself. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. So we see John, his ministry was prophetic. He spoke the truth. Even down to what he wore. John, his ministry was prophetic, but, but even... Even more importantly was his message of repent, turn, change your mind about what you think about the king. Change your mind about your sin. Turn to him. You know, one of, one of the things we can use to, to, picture, to picture repentance, Pastor Chris's was great, that stiff arm. If you're, if you're a football fan, you love to see a good stiff arm, don't you? I love that illustration. We could also think of a U-turn. You know, if, if you're bad with directions sometimes, we, we, some of us men have a little trouble, don't we? GPS helps with that now, but have you ever had a passenger, maybe your spouse, maybe not, who says, honey, I think we're going the wrong way. No, no, no. I got this. Right? We've been there. Then next thing you know, you miss the exit. And you got to wait 15 miles to get the next. Instead, if we had just listened and done a U-turn. It's a good picture of what repentance looks like in real life. A U-turn. I was going in this direction. I was confronted with the good news. The bad news of my sin. The good news of the gospel. I got to change. I gotta... But lastly, I want to see in John's ministry... I want us to see his humility. We've seen it, what, he, what he wore, his attire, his message, but his humility. Notice what he was up against. He was up against the religious establishment of his day. What we get here is a sneak peek that, that Israel of this time, the religious establishment, was already out of step with God and his kingdom. It didn't take Jesus to do that. It was before Christ even came. We see the Pharisees and Sadducees come to see his baptism. And he says, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John is humbly out in the wilderness, eating a diet of locust and wild honey. This is kind of showing us that John lived a lifestyle of the poor. And, and, and over and at odds with the lavish lifestyles of the religious establishment, he calls them a brood of vipers and tells them to repent. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're going to see them a lot in this series. And the Pharisees, what they were, were they were a lay group of religious leaders who wanted to call Israel back to living a holy lifestyle. But what they did was they added to the law of God. And the Sadducees, they were the aristocrats. They were the politicians, but they were also the priests. And they only believed the first five books of the Bible. And they didn't believe that there would be a resurrection at the end. The Pharisees did. The Pharisees had a lot more in common with the disciples in Jesus' theology than the Sadducees. But what we see is that they had become an enemy of God because they added to God's word. 
And the whole nature of John's ministry was to point from himself to another. So John didn't wear his clothing. John didn't eat locust and wild honey to be that wild guy out in the wilderness that everyone came out to see. He was that wild guy out in the wilderness who was saying, don't look at me, look to another. We see this with the quote from Isaiah 40. We're going to look at that a little more in depth next week. But, but it says in Isaiah 40 that in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John even goes on to say he's not worthy to carry the sandals of the one who comes after him. Now, slaves in that day were not even required to mess with someone else's sandals. You can imagine how disgusting that was, right? And John saying, I'm not even worthy to touch him, to touch his sandals. We see the humility of John. The whole mission of John was to lift up Christ. Did you know that that's your job and my job as well? I've said it here before, if there's ever a day where I'm not preaching Christ and him crucified and lifted up, you need to fire me. The minister's job, the Christian's job is to point away from ourselves and point to the one, Jesus Christ. And we see John. This is a great summary of his ministry from the gospel of John. What does John say there? We know it, don't we? He must increase, but I must decrease. The whole of John's ministry was to point to another. And so we see with John, John prepares us for the king. He calls us to get our hearts ready. And so as we close, two things I want us to think of. With a lot of sub points underneath each. Don't get too excited yet. As we look at the ministry of John, this prophetic and preparatory ministry, first and foremost, we do not need to presume upon God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees we see lived however they wanted. Some were more religious than others. But what they were doing is they were banking on their heritage. They were saying, Abraham is our father. We're good with God. Now, I'm afraid we can do the same thing. We can think we're all set with God because my grandmother really loved the Lord and she prayed for me. And my parents took me to church and I go to church too. I'm good. I'm good. Maybe we look at our good works, our community involvement, maybe even our church involvement. I'm good. I'm good with God. Look, I, I spend all this time at church. I serve him. I even keep the kids downstairs. I know I'm good. Right? Oh, I've been a member of this church for X number of years. I'm good. I've been a member of this denomination for so long. It's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. 
they were looking at all the wrong things and thinking they were right with God. And so our first lesson this morning is don't do that. Don't presume that you're all set with God because your mother or father followed Christ. You know, the old saying goes, what, God has no grandchildren? It's true. Do, do you sometimes think, oh, I'm, I'm baptized. I'm good. I've been baptized. I'm good with God. None of that matters. Th- those things are important. But what matters is, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and self and turned to Christ? And that's my next point. We need to learn repentance from John. Let's not presume to think we're all set with God with, with this, these things we have over here. Have we repented? And let me say this about repentance. There's a sense where there's an initial repentance in your life. Where, where you enter the kingdom. Where, where you see the holiness of God. Where you see that, that God is holy, perfect. And he can't even be around sin. And you're confronted with the reality that you're a sinner. And there's that initial repentance where you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ. And you see your sins laid upon him on the cross. And you see that he rose from the dead. And he offers you his righteousness. His perfect record. His death for your sins. He offers you that by faith alone. Not by church membership, not by baptism, not by you name it. He offers it simply on you receiving it. That's initial repentance. That's when we enter the kingdom. And here's the deal. When you enter the kingdom, you're God's child forever. But there's also a sense where all of the Christian life is repentance. And I know you've heard me say it's Somebody told me this a couple years ago, uh, that they never really thought of pastors as sinners until they met me. (laughs) But what they meant was, (laughs) here's what they meant. What they meant was, I regularly talk about the reality that I'm a sinner and that you're a sinner. In the Christian life, as Martin Luther said, the beginning, the first of his 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is why the Christian life sometimes can feel like two steps forward, five back. All of life is repentance. All of life. And what we mean by that, even if we've entered the kingdom, we're still called to repent. This is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer calls us to ask for forgiveness of sins daily. Because we sin daily. And we're in need of repentance daily, not to keep our salvation, but to remain in close fellowship with God. And and really, if you could think of it this way, if you can think of all of life as repentance this way, it is the lordship of Christ, us coming under the lordship of Christ in new areas regularly, right? Have Have you ever been reading the Bible and you say, whoa, I didn't realize that I've been sinning like that for the last 24 years. 
And that's, that's why we open God's word, to, to let him speak over our life and show us where we need new areas to come under the lordship of Christ. Because that is the work of sanctification in the Christian life. And I want to close with this quote from David Mathis. He says this, All the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day in every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. Let's pray.